Good morning, friends. Uh, I'm not recording where I might usually be doing this, not at St. Mark's and Mineral Wells, but it is a sermon that I did write for today to leave to be uh, shared at that church, and I wanted to share it with you as well. The title of the message is, How Do You Get There?, and it's based on Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 49. It has been said that Easter is the New Year's Day of the soul. It's a day of new beginnings, of new life, of starting over. And here in our part of the world, we see this symbolized by the fact that Easter takes place in spring. The trees fill up with leaves, flowers start to bloom, things begin uh, turning green again. We see signs of life all around us. And this is what Easter really means to the Christian faith. It is the difference between Christianity being a vibrant global movement and being a long-since forgotten philosophy. As Christian writer Warren Wiersbe said, Easter is the truth that turns a church from a museum into a ministry. Easter is important because on this day, Jesus rose from the dead. This is the belief that uh, the Christian church is built upon the resurrection of Christ. Without that resurrection, there would be no Christian faith. Back in the early 1900s, uh, Guy Thorne published a novel titled When It Was Dark, about a wealthy atheist who attempted to destroy Christianity by actually hiring an archaeologist to uncover the tomb of Jesus. Well, the tomb is a fake, but the world doesn't know that. They only know that a tomb has been uncovered in the outskirts of Jerusalem, in which is found a man who had obviously died by crucifixion. The wall of the tomb contains a plaque that says, Here lies Jesus of Nazareth, the great and good teacher. We secreted his body away in order to place him beyond the reach and rage of his enemies. He was the best of men. May he rest in peace. Well, the novel tells what happens in the aftermath of this discovery when the church is shut down and the missionaries return home from foreign lands and all Christian charity comes to a grinding halt. The result is not good for the human race. Now, interestingly enough, in recent years, it was announced that a tomb was unearthed in Jerusalem containing the remains of several people, including a man named Jesus, son of Joseph, and two women named Mary. Now, this may seem like a striking coincidence, but the fact is that these were common names in first century Palestine. In that time and region, uh, one out of five women were named Mary. Joseph was the second most common name among men. And Jesus was the sixth most common name. There have been several first century tombs uncovered with the remains of a man named Jesus. And at least one contained the remains of a man named Jesus, son of Joseph. So this particular discovery was not a first. And still, people involved with the project came to the conclusion that this tomb contained the bones of Jesus of Nazareth, his mother Mary, his brother Joseph, his um, wife Mary Magdalene, and their son Judah. James Cameron, uh, he was the guy who directed the movie Titanic, became fascinated with the story and put his money into the development of a documentary detailing the find. And the result was The Lost Tomb of Jesus, which aired on the, I think it did the Discovery Channel back in 2007, attracting about 4 million viewers. The book that accompanied the documentary actually reached number 6 on the New York Times bestseller list. As it turns out, virtually no one in the academic community took the story seriously. Some of the experts who appeared in the documentary have disputed the way their comments and opinions were represented 
and many archaeologists and ancient text scholars have refuted much of what appears in the documentary. <clears throat> From a scientific perspective, the claims of this documentary <clears throat> will never be taken seriously. Still, it's kind of an interesting story, and um, if it were true, it would be a history-changing story. The Christian faith is built on the idea that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. The resurrection is essential to our faith. It proves that Jesus is who he said he was. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 1, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You see, friends, without the resurrection, Jesus was just a good teacher. That's why Henry Morris, in his book, Many Infallible Proofs, said, the bodily resurrection of Jesus the Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. Now, in an article about the Jesus Tomb documentary, an Associated Press writer made a statement that I hope isn't really true. He said, this sort of inquiry... Uh, upsets many Christians for whom Jesus' ascension to heaven following his crucifixion is a fundamental tenet of their faith. Now, this sort of inquiry, in other words, examining the claims of the resurrection, shouldn't upset us at all. I mean, yeah, the resurrection and ascension are a fundamental tenets of our faith. But that doesn't mean that they can't withstand inquiry. And personally, I'd invite Everyone who's curious about Christianity, take a long, hard look at our faith, examine the claims, view the evidence, and come to your own conclusion. I mean, critics of Christianity often say that the church indoctrinates people. They claim that questions are not allowed and doubt isn't tolerated. Well, quite honestly, I'm not sure which church they're referring to because the church I've been a part of my whole life encourages intellectual inquiry. In fact, if you go back a few sermons on my sermon site, You'll see my Easter sermon where I respond to critics and all of the uh, controversy surrounding the resurrection. But, you know, the church that I've been a part of my whole life recognizes that good and sincere people sometimes disagree on certain subjects. And the church I've been a part of my whole life also recognizes that an individual's faith must be personal. It's not enough to believe something just because it's what you've been told all your life. You have to own it for yourself. Your faith must be heart-deep in order for it to be genuine. Now, in the text for today, Luke 24, we see how the followers of Jesus came to own their Christian faith. In these verses, we see how their faith went from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Now, how did it happen? Well, there are three types of faith demonstrated by Jesus' followers in Luke 24. And if you put this kind of faith to work in your life, you're going to find yourself growing deeper and stronger as well in your faith. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that in Luke chapter 24, we, need, we see a need for see-it-yourself faith. Let me read these words again. On the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, 
and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, did you notice everyone's reaction? The women were puzzled. The apostles thought it sounded like nonsense. Peter saw the empty tomb and went away, wondering. Now, it's interesting how each of these were reluctant to jump to a conclusion. It's not that they didn't want Jesus to be raised from the dead. Of course they wanted it more than anything else in the world. They just weren't quite ready to make the leap of believing it had happened without some kind of evidence. The women became convinced when two angels appeared before them telling them what had happened. For the apostles, this was not enough. Peter saw the empty tomb, the empty shroud in which a corpse would be wrapped, and he left wondering what was going on. It was only later that the apostles would become fully convinced. Jesus appeared before them, and they became frightened, as if they had seen a ghost. Jesus said to them in, in verse 39, Look at my hands and feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. In a similar way, Jesus extends this offer. He says to us, Look at me. Listen to my teachings. Examine my words. Hear what I have said about myself. I'm, I'm who I said I was. See for yourself. Friends, again, I just tell you, eventually you must come to a place where your faith is transformed from what you've been told to what you've experienced for yourself. Now, how do you get there? You keep looking. You keep asking questions. You keep learning. You keep growing. You develop a see-for-yourself type of faith. Now, the second thing I want you to notice here in Luke 24 is we see a need for scripturally sound faith. See, after Peter left the Bible wondering what had happened, Luke changes scenes to tell about two of Jesus' followers walking to the village of Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but the Bible says that they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them what they had been talking about, and they began to tell the stranger about Jesus, that he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. They told how he had been put to death, even though... They didn't hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But their dreams were shattered because they had expected Jesus to be, I guess, a political leader to rescue Israel from Roman tyranny, to usher in an age of peace and prosperity. See, this was their hope, but it wasn't based on the Bible. It was based on a common misconception of the Bible. First century Jews were looking for one kind of Messiah, but guess what? God had something else in mind. Now, the two men began and continued speaking to Jesus, and they told him in verses 22 to 26, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, that some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, while Jesus and these two followers walked along the road to Emmaus, Jesus taught them from the Bible 
things concerning himself. Can you imagine walking and talking and having Jesus lead a Bible class? Well, he explained to them that the Messiah wasn't just a political leader and that the Messiah wouldn't merely come to establish a political kingdom. He explained to them that the Messiah would give his life as a ransom for sins so that salvation would be made available to all people. Later, after Cleopas, that's one of the two men, and his friend had invited Jesus to stay with them in Emmaus, they sat down uh, for an evening meal. And Luke writes in verses 30 to 32, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Now, how is that that they suddenly realized, recognized Jesus? Was it just the way he broke the bread? Well, not exactly. It was in the fact that he had spent the afternoon teaching them about himself, explaining the scriptures to them. Before they met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they were holding on to some erroneous ideas about him. Their faith in Jesus was more cultural than it was scriptural. It was based more on popular perceptions than it was on biblical truth. In order for Cleopas and his companion to genuinely know Christ personally, they needed to know the truth about him. Now, I'll tell you what, friends, the same can be said for us today. Many people, even those who have gone to church most of their lives, don't really know the biblical Jesus. Oh, they might know the hippie Jesus, or the salesman Jesus, or the timid Jesus, or the angry Jesus, or the wishy-washy Jesus, or any number of other fabrications of his true character that have been passed on to others. But the real Jesus can only be fully understood through the Scriptures. Now, that's why we place such a high value on the Bible. It's not that the Bible is a book to be worshipped. It's that the Bible points us to Christ. Jesus himself said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. That's John 5.39. That's why Luke also said later in this chapter, in verse 45, Then he, Jesus, opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Again, friends, you must eventually come to a place where your faith is transformed from what you've heard to what you know. Your faith in Christ must be personal, not just something left over from Sunday school. I mean, how do you get there? You start by reading the Gospels. Read the stories of Jesus. Read his teachings. Read what the Bible says about him. Read about his life. You get to know Jesus by reading his book, the Bible. And third, I want you to notice that in Luke 24, we see a need for spirit-empowered faith. Verse 49, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So what did the Father promise here? It was the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, around verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is quoted as saying, But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is what makes the Christian faith personal. I believe you can weigh the historical evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that he did, in fact, rise from the dead. 
I also believe that through the study of scriptures you come to know about the nature of Jesus Christ. But being a Christian is about much more than this. Being convinced of the resurrection and being informed about the Bible is not enough. You have to have a personal one-on-one connection with Jesus the Christ. You can't live the Christian life in your own power. Jesus knew this. It's why he promised to send a helper. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live a holy life. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms you, that infuses you with the life of God. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. In the same way, we need to learn to wait on God's power. He wants to give you the strength you need to live the life he has called you to live, but you can't do it without his help. You need the Holy Spirit, or what I call the resident president, at work in your life. Now, how do you get there? It's the same way the first disciples of Jesus did. You let God do it. Did you get that? You let God do it. You wait on him to do his work in your life. If you're struggling to live the Christian life, if you're missing out on God's power, then you need to ask him to fill you with his spirit. And then wait for him to fulfill his promise. He is faithful. When you wait on him, he will not let you down. That's why I love Isaiah 40, verse 31 so much. It said, they who do what? Wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friends, this is the power God promises to those who wait on him. Easter, just a few weeks removed from us now, is the day, it was the day, it is the day, it will always be the day of new beginnings. It can be a new beginning for you today as well. This day can be the day when your faith is transformed from what you merely heard to what you've experienced for yourself. Now, how do you get there? One step in the process is to come and see for yourself. Take an up-close look at the claims of Christ and the truths of his resurrection. Another way to get there is through the studies of the Holy Scriptures, to meet Jesus face-to-face in the pages of the Gospels, the epistles to the New Testament, the books of Moses, the Old Testament prophets. Begin to read the Bible every day with the idea of encountering Jesus the Christ face-to-face. And you also get there by waiting on God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You need God's power at work in you. He has promised the Holy Spirit to give you the strength you need to do his will. And so I pray that you receive it today and let this day be a day of new beginnings. God bless you. God bless me. God bless all of us in this pursuit.